right, we'll be moving into a time of reading scripture. The scripture passage for today is from Philippians 3. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 12. This can be found on page 1786 in your pew Bible. And as you're flipping there, again, if you don't have a Bible, if you're like, I don't really know what the book says, or we're only going over a small piece and you're more curious, you can take the Pew Bible with you or share with someone who doesn't have one. We would love for people to continue to explore God's word. So Philippians 3, starting from verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It's the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, if, if you're newer to the church, I want to really encourage you to consider taking, if you've never taken a financial stewardship class to take it, um, financial peace is not about giving to the church. He will cover that in one of the lessons for four minutes. It's about um, our finances not having a hold of our throats so that we can live with personal freedom relative to our convictions. And that has, has everything to do with faith in Jesus and nothing to do with giving to the church until like lesson eight or something, okay? So you can just skip that week if you think we're trying to manipulate you and get all the benefit from it. Um, we have seen families able to adopt children because they were able to save enough money and pay off their debts. We have seen people um, make choices about that they couldn't have made otherwise that would have been unthinkable before they took the class. And that's why we run it. We do not run it to increase giving at High Point Church. Um, that is a side effect usually, but it's not the reason we do it. Um, let me also, for some of you um, who know that my son had major surgery this week and are going to ask me, instead of telling you all 160 times and you asking my wife when you see her, um, Jude's 98% spinal curvature and 90 degree twist was corrected to a zero degree twist and a 40% curvature in the surgery. That's considered a huge success. He came home on Friday. Things are going really well. Um, that's all you get to know. All right, so we were very pleased. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those answers to prayer. I know a lot of you prayed for him. It's one of those answers to prayer where, like, you don't really get to know what would have happened if you didn't pray, and it wasn't an obvious miracle. So you just loved us, it's a, and that's great. And God, I'm sure, heard and answered in ways that we just don't see. All right, um, let's jump in here because I have a lot to say and not a lot of road to drive on. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of talk in our culture about confidence, especially in relationship to the epidemic of anxiety and loneliness. And um, people really require confidence to do the things that they really think that they want to do in their lives. 
Um, living a life without meaningful confidence is really difficult and is going to lead to lots of really negative things. And so we pursue it in all kinds of different ways. You can go online and you can read articles like 12 things to tell yourself to increase your confidence or whatever. And um, sometimes those have a little bit of a placebo effect. They pick you up for a little bit before you fall back down to where you were. But what needs to happen is, is that we have to have a confidence, and not just a confidence to like, you know, um, not feel bad about our Instagram feed, but like confidence enough to die, confidence enough to suffer, confidence enough to like realize that the reason we want to eat everything in our refrigerator is because we don't feel good about what we're doing, confidence to like, like deal with our actual lives and the people in them, confidence to like actually be mistreated by family members and to be so strong as to not have to even really take it personally, but be able to deal with them out of the pain they're coming from rather than what they're actually saying. That's really hard. And there has to be kind of an, an, like an indwelling confidence that is possible to live in a world harmed by the curse in which evil and un- injustices are done every minute, everywhere, all the time, on lots of different levels in which we can stand and be who we're meant to be. The whole point of the book of Philippians, remember, is Paul is t- trying to teach these folks how to stand, right? The goal of Christian faith is not to attack others, nor to back down, but to stand, right? And the apostles' desire here is not just that we wouldn't give up in drudgery, right? The, 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 apostles, the apostles' idea here is, is that we would do it in and with joy. In every chapter, in the four chapters in Philippians, there's an emphasis on joy. And in chapter 3, it starts with that. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you all again about how to do that. And this whole passage is about how to do that. And it starts with having a sort of confidence— that allows you to be joyful and to stand in everything that's going to happen in your life. And not just in the stuff that's going to happen to you, but the stuff that you're going to make happen to you because the life you're going to choose to live with the courage Jesus gives you and out of the joy that he offers, right? You can see this in the first three verses of the— or th- verses three and four in this chapter. He says, we who, is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus, meaning we have the right to have spiritual confidence. Not because there's a group of people being like, no, you have to be more like us to be spiritual. They're like, that's not true. We're the ones with the covenant promises of God represented in circumcision, but that are now represented in the one who is Jesus. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is working in us to worship Him, the great divine Spirit God. And also, it is we who have a boast in the resurrected Messiah, the anointed one. Like, we, we have nothing to be ashamed of. We have everything to be confident about. And he says, listen, and we, we put no confidence in what he calls the flesh. He says, though I myself have reason for such confidence, if anybody thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's he's saying, he's saying, look, it's just assumed human beings have to operate in a state of confidence to be bold, to stand, to have joy. It's assumed. The question is, what is the basis for your confidence? Is it going to be in this thing that the Apostle Paul calls the flesh? Or anything? else other than Christ, right? One of the most basic questions about Christian faith is like every morning when you wake up, the question is, okay, you're going to go through the day today. Hopefully you're going to make it the whole day, right? What is your confidence today? Like what is the basis of the thing that makes you who you are and makes you brave enough and capable to stand, to have joy, and to act beautifully in all of the circumstances you're going to face today? right? 
Now, there's a number of dynamics that we can talk about. There's at least two in this passage that are really clear. One is just the pragmatic one, like the strategic reasons for confidence, right? Like if I play a basketball game, I want to start the game with like, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And if I stick to that game plan and I am the player I can be, I think I could win this game, right? There's just the basic strategic gain and loss question, which is, am I going to make it, right? Secondarily, there's also the question of like, should I make it? Like, am I worthy to make it? Like, should I win? Or am I going to get to the end having won and realize that I don't deserve it and hate myself even though I've achieved something that I wanted? And that can happen too. There's plenty of people who get to the top of their business and they pretty much hate themselves for what they had to do to get there. Had to do. Right? Or you get to a certain place in your life where you've made it, but you don't feel like you made it the way you should have made it. You would have rather have been less successful but kept your integrity. Like you, th- there's like a certain kind of pre- cross pressure between these two things to where we want to make it to the end, gaining and not losing, but in a way or in a place or a space where we feel like we have the right to enjoy the thing we got to. Right? And in this passage, he covers both of these things. But he also covers the fact that it's— it's actually no good relative to our confidence, as relates to Christ at least, to say, well, it's just going to be in a bunch of things. Because in theory, you could have like a game plan where you're going to do 37 things correctly. If you do all of that, you might succeed. That's really not the approach the Apostle Paul takes. All of the many things that are part of our confidence spiritually, and there are many, are all unified in a single focal point, which is Christ. Which is one of the, the beauties of the incarnation, right? God, in his first pass at Revelation, which we call the law, he gave like a lot of commandments. And it wasn't super clear which ones were the most important. When Jesus is asked, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But when you go to the Torah and you look at like where that is in the first five books of the Bible, they're like stuck in like ones in Leviticus 17, like right kind of in the middle somewhere. It's not, it's not like it's one of, it's the first of the Ten Commandments. Right? There's like this whole panoply. And what happens in Jesus is that all of them are all brought together in a single focal point, which is Christ himself. And that by focusing on Christ himself, by virtue of that, you begin to focus on all the things related to Jesus the Christ. And you end up doing many things, but it comes through a single focus. And a lot of times, for us to really find a confidence in the face of profound suffering, intense pain, facing death, and then facing all the things that feel like death, whether it's public speaking, apologizing to a child, dealing with difficulties at work, whatever it is, right? You have what it takes because your focus isn't, is, is focused enough that the peripheral things that you think would be helpful, what Paul says, those peripheral things you think are helpful are really just conflicting with, diluting, confusing, dividing, and distracting from the great basis of confidence, which is Jesus Christ himself, right? If you have too many focal points, you're just going to get anxiety, not confidence. And so the way I want to break this down is to work through these different ideas, right? One is this idea from verses 3 and 4. We're supposed to have this kind of confidence, and that confidence comes from knowing Christ himself, right? What that requires is there has to be this process where we completely go through a process of consideration where we see things completely differently than we saw them before. We see them completely different than what the Bible calls the world or the normal way human beings look at things not informed by God and his Christ, right? Then the second thing is comparison, right? The way he does the, the considering is he's like, okay, what is the supreme thing and what isn't? 
Like he compares them in their value to each other. And then there is confirmation. That's not misspelled. It's not confirmation. It's conformation. It's to be formed in the likeness of the thing we believe in. Right? Those three things. Right? Sorry, they all start with C. Okay. So to start with here is our confidence is in belonging to Christ Jesus himself. One of the things you're going to notice in this passage is that the word Christ comes before the word Jesus in almost every situation. Okay? In a general sense, now this is not specific in every situation, in a general sense, if Christ comes before Jesus, the emphasis is on his lordship as the anointed one who is king over all things and brings all of salvation through his living, miraculous life, death, and resurrection. And the person who did that is Jesus. Christ Jesus. Right? When it says Jesus Christ, usually the emphasis is the person of Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, Mary's son, who God, who is also the son of God, who became the Christ and demonstrated the work of God. So that it's, the emphasis is the humanity, the person, the activities, but the focal point is on who Jesus is as a person that we connect with, his holiness, his love. When it's Christ, it's like his position, his action, his work. And the emphasis in this passage is on his Christness. Does that make sense? All right, let's jump in. And I want to make something clear. When the Apostle Paul talks about everything that is not important, everything that is even, he uses the word rubbish or garbage, that everything compared to Jesus is garbage, he's not saying everything is garbage, right? He's not saying your kids are garbage. He's not saying that. He's not saying that like properly ripened mangoes are garbage. Right? He's not saying that like all the good in the world and in life, or even the good in the things he calls the flesh, that those are bad. Because the things that he calls the flesh are his religious identity, his ethnicity, his political advocacy, right? All, these are the things he says are completely of the flesh and not any basis of our confidence. Right? He's like, look, I had all kinds of passion. I so much, so, I had so much passion for my public advocacy and political advocacy that I was destroying the church. I was really good at it, and I was so passionate about it. And he's like, and it's nothing. Like, it, it's, that's the flesh. My confidence, if my confidence is rooted in that, it's completely wrong. Now, he's not saying he doesn't want to be passionate for God. He's not saying he doesn't have a religious identity. He's not saying he's, he, he's not proud to be a Jew. He's just saying none of those things are our confidence. Right? They're not bad, but when you, we try to take confidence in them, they become a liability. They do much more harm than good. Okay, so let's walk through these. First is, confidence requires a complete change in consideration. Okay, I, I got four C's in there. I had one that had six, but I thought that was too much. Okay, so in order to have a confidence in Christ, the way we're meant to, it requires like a complete change in how we consider the meaning of things, how we reckon them, what we think they are. The language that the apostle uses more than anything else in this passage is gain and loss. These are literally economic terms he's using. Asset, liability, gain, loss. That's what he's talking about. He's like, what is a plus column for me and what is a negative column for me? And he said, basically everything I had put in the plus column, when it comes to confidence, the ability to stand firm and have joy and believe I'm going to make it, all of those turned out to be liabilities. I thought they were gains. I thought they were assets. They turned out to all be liabilities because they all distracted from the centrality of Christ Jesus as my confidence, the one who died and was raised again, 
the one who lost everything but gave everything, the one who was the focal point of all that was good, that like all of those things, the more I thought about them, the more they take away from my confidence in belonging to Christ Jesus. Now, you can see it this way, right? Whatever was my prophet, and now I consider—now all three of these words are not just translational um, conveniences. Paul uses the Greek word for consider three times to emphasize it. I now consider loss for the sake of Christ was more. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, right? You see there's a change in how he reckons things, the value, what, what each thing means. Friends, you and I cannot ever, 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 ever have a sustaining confidence in belonging to Christ. The joy, the capacity to stand, the capacity to persevere that he's talking about, unless we re-reckon everything in creation and in life. Everything has to be reconsidered, re-reckoned, reordered, remeasured in relationship to how it feeds into and supports our confidence in Christ Jesus. And it turns out anything added to that confidence ends up being a functional liability. Better off reckoned as garbage than as asset. Right? Now, you might be like, well, that's, pr- I mean, that's a pretty absolute thing to say. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a really absolute thing, thing to say. And it, because he, w- the thing he roots is, he's saying the only way this works, the only way you can really reckon things the way they're meant to be reckoned, is if you actually compare them. Right? Some comparison is bad. Right? Galatians 6 says you shouldn't compare your holiness to other Christians. You should compare your holiness to Jesus. Right? So there's some comparison that's bad. But in this case, he's saying comparison is absolutely necessary. We need to com- compare the, the absolute value of all the things we would take our confidence in to Christ and what Christ does in providing a righteousness for us that is from God and through his faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ. He's like, take all the stuff and compare it to that and then see how it measures. And what he says is it, it doesn't measure very well. So the second thing is, is that confidence requires a choice And that choice implies comparison, right? Like if you say, I believe in Jesus. Okay, great. As compared to what? Believe as compared to what kind of belief? Jesus as compared to what? Right? And so you see this in how he talks about his— So, okay, there's some things you just can't do in translation, all right? Um, This passage, I feel like I'm eulogizing an old friend. This was my favorite passage in college when I was 19 years old. The whole thing was like highlighted in yellow. Okay? And I like the old NIV translation of this. However, um, there's some things you just can't do in translation, like when people do things linguistically that just aren't supposed to be done. So in the beginning of verse 8, the Apostle Paul uses five or six conjunctions, depending on how you count, which you're not really supposed to do. You're supposed to just use one conjunction. You know what I mean? Like, but or and, right? But the Apostle Paul uses three, and the middle one has three in it. Okay, so he's already used the Greek word but, which is Allah, which means, in, so there's but day, which is like, um, I'm going to eat, but I'm going to eat a lot. It's like, it's like uh, the and but, right? And then Allah is the, um, I used to like drinking milkshakes, but now I don't drink them because they make me fatter faster. Okay, right? So like, it's like a, it's, it's contrasting. He's already used it in contrast in verse 7. Okay, so he's like, but whatever's to my process— 
profiting now because they're lost for the sake of Christ. So now he wants to say another but that's distinguishing, but he already used that but. So now what? So he uses it again, and then he uses a three-conjunction word, which means completely on the contrary of, and then he uses chi, which is like also, right? And then he uses the I think it's a subjunctive, subjunctive middle voice verb. Okay, middle means, so if I say, so for example, in Ephesians 5, there's this place where it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, right? Why isn't it translated submit to your husbands? Right? Because one is in the passive and one is in the reflexive. Submit to your husbands is the passive, right? You just do it, right? Submit yourself to your husbands is in the middle voice, the reflexive. That is, it's your job to do the thing even though it's in the passive. Does that make sense? So it's your job to make the passive thing happen. Does that make sense? Which is like a lot of—and here's the thing about Ephesians 5 is the form of the verb to submit, the middle and the passive are the exact same letters. So you can't know, which has led to a lot of ink being spilled, you can imagine, and people yelling at each other. Okay, let's move back to this passage. Okay, so, so what he said, he says like, so what is more, Allah, but, right, very much on the contrary, also I myself consider everything a loss. You see the, like, the emphasis there? Now, you can't really translate that in English, or you just have, like, a really weird English translation, but that's what's happening. Now, what's the emphasis here? The emphasis here is he doesn't want to just say, I consider everything a loss. That is, all the things about my Jewish Hebrewness. Here, he literally is using all of this disjunction to point to which word? Say it out loud if you know it. He, all of this is to point to one word, which is, I highlighted it for you. Everything. Everything. So first he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. That is, my Jewishness, my Hebrewness, that I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, that I was a Pharisee, that I did, like, political and religious activism, that I did all this stuff. Like, all of that is the flesh, and I don't count that as a, as a asset in relationship to Christ. It's actually a liability because of the way it distracted me from Christ. He said, but on the contrary, what is more, all the, myself, I consider everything, you guys listen to this, everything— is a liability compared to the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see that point? He's trying to—he like, he, he probably would have written another couple pages of conjunctions if there were more. You know what I mean? Like, he's trying to say, listen, in this comparison, the comparison of what produces enduring, joy-creating confidence, that is, real faith, in the human soul, there is a comparativeness. And what we are comparing is everything to the glory of the knowledge of Christ. And he says, there's no comparison. They don't compare. In comparison, one is garbage. And the other is the thing of the greatest supremacy there can possibly be, right? Um, there's this particular word that Paul uses here that's only used once in the Bible. So like there's a few passages that say— um, so for example, uh, Ephesians 3.19 says this, And to know the love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the full measure of the fullness of God. And you're like, oh, that's so beautiful, because love surpasses knowledge. Which is true. That's what that verse says. It does. Okay. Do you see that word surpass? Same thing, surpass. surpass. See, I, I retranslated that, right, to superiority. That's so hierarchical, Nick. Why would you do that? Well, just hang on. 
right? 2 Corinthians 3.10 says, for, for what was glorious that now has no glory, that is the law. Now in comparison with surpassing glory, that is of Christ, okay? So Christ is of surpassing glory to the law. Now both of those places where that word surpass is used, um, the, the word is to throw farther. Basically, it means farther or further than, and then the word ball, which means to throw. So if you imagine, like, I've, I'm not a very—I don't have a great arm football-wise. But if I had an arm, I was like, like, you threw the football and went, like, 30 yards, and I, like, Aaron Rodgered the thing, and it went, like, I don't know, 38. And <laughs> I—see, like, I threw it farther than you. Like, I went beyond what you did, right? And so you'd be like, oh, you who pair-balled that. That was great, right? Like, and so— Love surpasses or throws further than. Does that, make, does that make sense? It surpasses knowledge, right? Or Jesus, the Christ in his glory, surpasses the law. The law had glory, but Jesus Christ surpasses it, throws further. Does that make sense? Right? That's not the word used here. The word used here is hierarchically higher. It's superior to. It's greater than. Now, that has a really interesting meaning. One, it is hierarchical and therefore superior. It is the supremacy of Christ. Christ is the natural superior to everything in creation. And therefore, nothing compares to him. Right? But also, what it means is this. Christ's inferiors are not unworthy. Right? Christ's superiority gives all of his natural inferiors meaning, bound up with and impurposed to Christ's supremacy. It's a, see, the, the gl glory, like love, in Christ is not a zero-sum game, right? He's not—he he, he doesn't believe in— Jesus is not a Marxist economically. There's just a limited amount of work. No, there's—no, he's a supply-side economist. He's like, the more we give, the more we do, the more we serve each other, the more everybody has. That's true for love. That's true for glory. And so the more supreme Christ is in his glory and his beauty and our boast in him, the higher he is when we boast in him, the better our boast is. Which is what it says in verse 3, right? We glory or we boast in Christ Jesus, right? So how, how big a deal is our boast in Christ? That I belong to Jesus the Christ. He loves me. Okay? Now, if Jesus is a dead carpenter that's 2,000 years old who never knew I existed and never could and never will, that's not a great boast. You know what I'm saying? If, if Jesus was like an angel, that'd be pretty cool. Right? If Jesus was like a saint that wasn't God, but God rose from the dead or something, he's like a special miraculous saint, like a, like a, like a hyper Elijah, and he loved me, right? That would be cool. That'd be cool, right? It's not, wouldn't be as great as what it is, which is the Son of God, God who is God himself, who is perfect, who created me, loves me, and gave himself for me. That is my boast. And I will die with him, and he will raise me from the dead. And he is mine, and I am his forever. And that is my boast. See, the higher Jesus goes in supremacy, the greater my boast is. Right? I don't, I, I don't have to go, well, I, that makes me Christ's inferior. I just feel like that's very judgmental. But no, the higher he is, the higher my relationship with him is, the higher my glory in him is, the higher my future is. He is my true superior. And if there was such a thing as him being even more superior, I would be glad for that. Let's keep moving. 
One of the reasons why this is important is, is that if you read through this passage carefully, Paul is answering questions he doesn't take the time to ask. But he's answering these incredibly deep questions that we need confidence about. Like, will I be committed to what is truly superior? Like, in my life, am I going to be committed to that which is truly good? That which, if I only have one life and I want to commit it to whatever's the best thing, what is that thing? And will my life have been committed to it? Will I follow the truth and real wisdom? Or will I unknowingly follow a lie and be foolish in what I do and how I live? Will I actually know God as personally as anybody can know such a being? Like, what are the, what's the opportunity for that? What is the possibility? And can I participate in that possibility? Will I have a, the claim and belonging to God and what's His? Right? Or— Will I, in the end, be God's? That is, will I persevere? Will I, like, I can believe something now, but like, in the future, when I actually face death, or suffering, or loss, or torture, or whatever, like, will I—will God be with me then? And will I end up with Him? Right? This question about, will I—will I be vindicated in the future? Or will I have a claim to be considered righteous, and actually be righteous as I—as righteous as I can be? And will I have followed the right image of righteousness, right? Like most of us want to be good, not just great. Right? Like if I, if I told you, you could be like some super powerful person, but you would be like a really terrible person. Or that you would be saintly beyond your imagination, but have really nothing materially. What would you pick? That's, that might not be an easy question. <laughs> but what would you pick? Because both things matter. Like, we want to be vindicated. We want to survive. We want to make it. We want glory. We, we'd love to be rich in some meaningful way, right? As long as it didn't destroy us and become a liability to us and take away our confidence and ruin our faith, right? If we could handle wealth, if we could handle power, we would love it. And we should love it. God says to those who are faithful, He's going to give more power and responsibility in heaven. And we won't, we won't be like, oh God, no, I don't, you know, I don't think power is good. That's not what's going to happen. We will be morally ready to assume that power and to adjudicate it beautifully. Virtually no one is capable of doing that here. Right? Sorry, I can't stop on these. Seven, will I belong, will I belong in, a, in to, I'm sorry, will I have belonging in meaningful endeavors that create real pleasure, significance, meaning, and legacy. The kind of friendship that's deeper than family, and to do deeds that I can be glad are part of my legacy forever. Or like, these are questions that like, maybe you don't answer because you're flipping through your phone too much, and you don't ever get quiet enough, or think deep enough, less, or like, thoughts that are unsensual enough, and like, moral and spiritual enough to even know you have these in your heart. But these are the questions you're numbing with all that crap. Because you don't think that there are answers. You're afraid that there aren't answers, or you're afraid that if you find the answers, the path will be hard. And turns out, it is. It is. Right? And then eight, will I overcome my greatest enemies, death and judgment? Is there a way to live forever in glory rather than in extinction as a zombie or in deserved punishment? I threw zombie in there for fun. And because of C.S. Lewis's abolition, or uh, great divorce. Okay, now, in this passage— you can see two things, right? I don't know if we're going to get the third point today, guys. Just, just prepare yourself. There's two things that are these great glories that, on which our confidence can be focused. The first is, is the knowledge of Christ Jesus, right? He says, he says, the main part of my focus is the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Now, so for some of you, that might be disappointing, 
that that is the way that verse should be translated literally because you like the knowing Christ language. Knowing Christ. I know Christ. I know him. Okay, listen. The next verse where it says knowing Christ, that's literally exactly what it means, okay? So you're not going to lose both. You just lose this one, okay? So knowing Christ is still a huge focus and theme and result of this supreme knowledge of Christ Jesus. So don't think that I'm going to say it's just about knowing stuff. You should go to more Sunday school classes. It's not about experientially knowing God as a person. It is about that. That's not what this verse says. What this verse says is, is that the apostle has experienced a personal soulish apprehension of the height of this knowledge of Christ Jesus. When he says the knowledge of Christ Jesus by there, he doesn't just mean like a set of doctrinal statements, but everything that you can know about Jesus, who he is and what he did. And if you see it in its bigger picture, and you see how it interrelates and how it affects everything, and how that tapestry of truth and beauty compares with the muddling together of the seed picking of the philosophers of men, and you see the supremacy of that, it will give you a confidence incapable of being received in any other way. The glory of the supremacy of the knowledge of Christ. What that means is this. Why, why is that better than just knowing Jesus? Nick, why can't you just leave it in IV 84 where it was? It was very relational. We loved it. Why do you have to ruin it by translating it the way the apostle actually said it? Okay, here's why. Okay, I'm going to use the classic, like, pastor talks about his wife illustration. I'm sorry, this is a cliche, but it's actually true. I actually love my wife, okay? So, you could try to take apart my relational feelings towards my wife and the body of knowledge I have accumulated in my relationship with my wife— and those could be two things, right? The second thing, that accumulation of knowledge about my wife is not trivial. It is the functional and fundamental basis of what my affections are related to. If you took those away, if I had some kind of brain injury and all she was was this curly-headed brunette, right? Who like said she was my wife and that we had been in love for 27 years, right? I'd be like, oh, and it would not do the same thing for me as what I actually have. Because the knowledge of her accumulated and participating and interacting with my affections of knowing her are mutually reinforcing. Some of us really love Jesus emotively. You're going to lose your faith. 20 years from now, you're not going to believe because you have not you're not growing in knowing Christ. And so the knowing of Christ, Jesus that you have is fragile. It's more fragile than you think it is. It's more fragile than you know. Because you don't really see the supremacy of it over all the seed picking of the philosophy of men. And so you're going to go to college, or you're going to go to this thing, or your first child is going to die, or something's going to happen. You're going to get cancer at 37, and what's going to happen is you're not going to see the supremacy of the knowledge of Christ, and so you're going to start doubting your relationship with the person of Jesus that you feel. Because he's going to feel absent. You're going to experience the dark night of the soul. You're going to feel hurt. You're going to not know why he isn't speaking to you or healing you or helping you. And you're going to wonder what's going on with all that, and you're going to start to hate the one you said you loved. Because you don't, you haven't really, even though you love Jesus, you haven't been caught up into the supremacy of the knowledge of Christ Jesus and seen how in comparison, the best and good philosophies of men and science are seed-picking rationalizations of minimal things. 
and are only caught up hierarchically under the great supremacy of Christ Jesus. And then to know that Christ, which surpasses everything. That matters. That comparison matters. Right? The last thing we'll talk about today is, he says, that, and then there's, so, so there's that. There's also the question of righteousness. That like I have to exist with the affirmation of my own conscience. Like how do I believe that I deserve to exist? Like, like how do I, how do I deal with the fact that there's all these ideas in the world of what righteousness is and what it should be like and how I should conform? How do I with confidence to say I'm conforming to this Christ and not to all this other stuff you're telling me to? To the extent to which conforming to Christ is conforming to the stuff you want me to, great. But I have one focus on one thing in which is my confidence, which is knowing and belonging to Christ, right? And you see, uh, this is another one of those deals where like I memorized this verse and working through it in Greek ruins it for you. Um, where he says, look, I—the second thing he says is so fundamentally different by comparison is righteousness, like a good, what it means to be a good person. What it means to really be a good person. To be right with the world and with the universe and with God. And to actually be a good person. Right? And he says, there is a righteousness that I've pursued on my own which comes from the law. Right? He's like, there, there are these rules in the world, and some of them are like pretty good, pretty good sets of rules in the world. Right? And I try to—and you can try to do them, and you can, you can live up to them in a way that's like sort of faultless. Like, people would be like, yeah, you're doing it, right? And he's like, and I realized that that was, that was nonsense. That actually, Paul says in First Timothy that it made him a wicked man. I mean, a man of violence and hatred and persecution of others. He said, what I realized was is that what I really wanted, what I really needed, was a righteousness that was actually a gift from God— and it, instead of being based on my faithfulness, it's actually based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There's all, there's all, the, the, for a long time, there's been this argument among New Testament scholars where when, whenever it says, um, where's the verse? Okay. Not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Okay, faith in Christ in Greek is Jesus, faith, in the genitive. So it either means—so it's the faith of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean faith that is of Christ, that is the object of that faith, is Jesus? Or does it mean faith of Christ, that is Christ's faith? So it can be translated faith in Christ, or Jesus, or faith in Jesus, or it can be translated the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, in some cases, like in Romans 3, for example, I think faith in Jesus Christ, that is us believing in Jesus, is the right way to translate it. It could be either. In this passage, because he's contrasting it directly with his own faithfulness under the law— I told her to do that. It's cool. It's fine that they're coming up. <laughs> because he's talking about faithfulness under the law and his faithfulness, now everything's relying on his faithfulness. And then he says, I want a righteousness that's from God and based on— Faith in Jesus, my faith in Jesus, or based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And then notice he ends the phrase with, or ends the sentence with, that's from God and is on, on the basis of faith. So he makes clear at the end of the sentence, 
that the only way you get this righteousness is on the basis of faith. That is, you have to believe in Jesus. Otherwise, you don't have access to this righteousness. But what he's saying is he's saying the basis of the righteousness, the way the righteousness comes about is not by my blamelessness or my faithfulness, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It is a righteousness that is from God on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not mine, but is attained. I receive it on the basis of faith. I have to believe. And then the next verses, which we will get to next week, he says, and that changes everything about me for me conforming to this comparison. That in Christ, I can receive a righteousness and be made right with God. And in so doing, I enter this process in which I take hold of that for which he took hold of me, and he begins to make me righteous because he begins to make me like himself. Listen, you can't—you can be like, well, Nick, I'm not becoming righteous. I don't think we should say that. Okay, listen, then you're not becoming like Jesus the Christ, which is the whole goal, to become like Jesus the Christ. To the extent to which you become like Jesus the Christ, you become righteous, like actually righteous, or you're not anything like Jesus the Christ. The two are necessarily tied to each other. You are, after you receive the righteousness of Christ, that received righteousness is transformative. And if you focus on the supremacy of Christ Jesus, the knowledge of him, you will know him. You'll be caught up into his sufferings. You'll be connected to his resurrection power. You will experience what it means to belong to him in the fellowship of his suffering and his death in the most meaningful actions a human being can engage in. And you will somehow, he says, through all of that, attain the resurrection from the dead. It starts with a new consideration of those things, a belief, so that you can have the confidence God has wanted to give you as that gift. Let's pray. Lord, um, please help us to receive the gift of Christ's righteousness and to see and savor the gift of Christ's supremacy so that we can stand, so that we can persevere, and so that we can be filled with joy in everything. Help us to believe right now. Holy Spirit, come and help us to believe right now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.